You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hi, my name's Ros Benson. I'm a rheumatology registrar in Liverpool. I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Kimmy Hyrick and Dr Kath Watson, We're going to be talking today about the British Society for Rheumatology Biologics Registry for Rheumatoid Arthritis. It's a bit of a mouthful, so from now on I'm going to describe this as a BSRBR. Professor Kimmy Hyrick is an epidemiologist at the University of Manchester and a rheumatology consultant at the Manchester University NHS Trust. And um, Dr Kath Watson is a programme manager for the BSRBR. So thank you for joining us firstly. It would be great if you could give us a bit of a brief overview of why the BSRBR was set up originally. So first of all, thanks for asking me to be here. It's really nice. And uh, it's so the BSRBR is a project that's been running for over 20 years. And this is a great opportunity just to reflect back on why this study exists at all and where we've been and where we're going. Uh, because sometimes people question the value of a study that's been running for so long. And hopefully today we can talk about why this study is as important as it was when we set it up over 20 years ago. Um, so to take you back to probably 1999, 2000 at that time, we had no biologics in rheumatology. And this was a new therapy that was coming. We knew very little about it. Very few patients were enrolled in the original clinical trials, but we also knew the potential and the excitement of this treatment. One of the anxieties we had when we introduced this new treatment into rheumatology is, would this be a safe treatment for our patients? So this, the first biologic drugs we had was something called anti-tumor necrosis factor, a factor that in theory may be beneficial for controlling tumors. We now know, of course, that that is not exactly what the role of TNF does. But we thought we should be pragmatic, forward thinking, and set up a registry that would capture data from patients starting these drugs so that we could proactively follow what the safety of these drugs would be. So the British Society for Rheumatology and the University of Manchester worked very closely with the pharmaceutical companies. Um, At the time, I think it was Wyeth and Shearing Plough that had etanercept and infliximab to establish this registry. The registry, even though funding was received from the pharmaceutical companies, was an run independently at the university to ensure that there would be no presumptions of conflict uh, or any uh, other issues regarding the independence of the data. So the study was set up as a prospective observational cohort study. At the time, we thought, well, these drugs are very expensive. We don't know how many would be on them. And we thought, well, if we can get 2,000 patients starting these drugs, we'll follow them for about five years. We think not everyone will be on these drugs. So let's also recruit patients that are receiving other drugs like methotrexate, sulfasalazine. And over time, we could see whether rates of adverse events would differ between these two. And the adverse event we were most worried about was lymphoma. So that was the basis on which this study was set up. It was set up within the NHS across rheumatology. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot about recruitment, but the study has now recruited patients from over essentially every NHS trust sees patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, that's uh, it's hugely impressive, isn't it? It's been very successful over its um, 20 years. How would you say it's evolved um, since its inception? 
I think the first thing that has changed been the way that we have evolved as a specialty. So the first thing that we found was our estimate of 2,000 patients starting a biologic therapy over the next five years was a huge underestimate. And the need within rheumatology for patients for biologic therapy was massive. We started recruiting patients and within a year we were recruiting hundreds of patients a month into the study. We reached the 2,000 patients within about a year. We ended up extending the initial uh, sample size of the study to 8,000 patients. So that was the first thing that evolved was the size of the study, which therefore meant what we could do with data would also evolve. The second thing that evolved was, of course, etanercept and infliximab are not the only biologics. Mm -hmm. And as new products have come to market, we have been expanding and expanding the remit of what the registry can do. So, of course, all most of the TNF therapies are now part of the registry. We expanded quickly to rituximab, uh, to IL-6 inhibitors, and most recently to JAK inhibitors. Now, and can I ask, I think you sort of alluded to this, actually, in terms of the need for flexibility within the registry when you set it up. Perhaps, Kath, if I propose this question to you, what sort of information does the registry capture? Okay, so it actually captures um, a lot of drug information around what sort of drugs that patients are receiving. So not just the biologic therapies, but also any other drugs that they're receiving. Um, And I think Kimmy's alluded to that we're interested in sort of adverse events and side effects. So we collect a lot of data on that as well. And obviously, we're following patients over time. So from the time from when they first register with the study, um, their consultant will start them on a biologic. They'll be asked if they want to join the study um, give consent to take part Um, and if they give consent to take part we then they complete a baseline form within the clinic um, and then at follow-up intervals we will collect further data. And how what proportion of rheumatology services across the UK contribute to the BSRBR? I I think the BSRBR RA is very unique in that way back in I think in 2002 it was actually nice guidance that all patients on biologic therapy should be registered with us and these were the days when we were getting 300 questionnaire registrations a month. Um, so Kimmy and I quickly expanded the team of people because we need a lot of administrators um, to process this data. And, and at the time, it was paper-based. So we probably had almost all centres, NHS, rheumatology trusts submitting data to us at that time. I think it's changed more over the years now. I think now we're probably getting about two thirds of sites across the UK sending us data on patients, so registering new patients, also re-registering patients because some patients who switch drugs can then actually be reconsented and re-registered in a new cohort that we're recruiting to, which actually means that they get new re- accrual with the clinical research network. And that actually brings resource back into, into the individual rheumatology trust, which is great. Yeah. And I can imagine that's sort of a, a carrot in the um, trying is. to help people continue to register patients Absolutely. because I mean, I recognise that anything where you have to um, keep data on a registry requires time, doesn't it, from the participating it teams? It so. does. It's a huge burden on the teams. And I think that's one thing that we've evolved recently is we're now online on an online system. So rheumatology teams can have direct conversations with us. So if there's queries about um, a side effect or a potential side effect, we can actually ask them for the data that we need, the additional data there and then while they've got the clinic notes with them. So actually having that real-time conversation makes a big difference. 
I mean, it's very impressive. So 20 years on, still have two thirds of sites participating within this registry. How do you think you have managed to keep up that level of participation? What are some of the, because there's registries across multiple conditions now in rheumatology, aren't there? And I think probably there's a lot that we can learn from how the BSR, BRRA has, has worked. So I think I think we do a number of things. We try to offer as much training as possible to sites. We have a, a team of a, it's a small team yeah. team of people who want to to help sites if they've got problems. Um, we do online training now, which in the days of um, when we had to go and physically visit sites, um, that took a lot, a lot longer for us to do that. But now we can do everything online. We can have teams from across the United Kingdom sitting in on a Teams meeting, having a chat as to how this can work in each individual department. Because we appreciate that. Every Every, every department has their own kind of local ways of doing things and local systems. Yeah, I can see that's very good because it helps you understand, really, have a better understanding of that across the country, doesn't it? I mean, I, perhaps I put this to you, Kimmy. I mean, there's been multiple publications that have come out as a result of the, the registry. What are some of the publications that you've been most proud of being part of? Wow, publications that I'm most proud of. I mean, the registry now has data on over 30,000 patients over coming up close to 50,000 treatment courses. The potential for how we can use these data is amazing. And there's probably been close to 100 publications that have come from this registry. Uh, There's been publications from the team in Manchester. This is a BSR resource. So the data have been analysed by groups around the UK as well. This isn't just Manchester's data, this is the UK's data. So we're really pleased that a significant number of publications have come elsewhere. And I think the reason I struggle with what is what are the ones I'm most proud of is I every paper we publish has taken such time and such care to manipulate and understand the data to make it ready to analyze to understand what is the what is the research question what is the need for this paper and so you know I've been an academic for almost 25 years and I'm still proud every time we get a paper published yeah if I could reflect on what perhaps have been some of the most important papers I think the initial reason for setting up the the biologics register was to understand whether anti-TNF therapies increase the risk of lymphoma. And probably about eight years now, we finally were able to answer that question with a lot of statistical confidence. And that was some very nice work that was done by our colleague, Dr. Louise Mercer, who's a rheumatology consultant in Manchester now. And we confidently showed that we did not see an increased risk of lymphoma among patients receiving anti-TNF therapies compared to those receiving our standard conventional DMARDs. I think a second paper that, it's a very recent paper actually that we've done, looked at the issue of refractory disease. I think when the biologics register was established, we thought we would start patients on biologic therapy, their first one, and this would, you know, take care of their arthritis and all would be well. And we now know that uh, there's patients that, despite there being a number of treatment choices available, true disease control is still very elusive for them. And it wasn't really known at a national level to what extent that is taking place. And along the topic of refractory disease, we published two papers in the last few years. One of them was a, a long time coming, just trying to understand within this data set, how would you even define what refractory disease is? Ref- 
somewhat limited still, despite this big data set having a lot of data. But with all of our choice, we said, well, how many patients have actually received a drug within every class of biologic therapy that we had? And we found that overall, 6% of patients, so six out of every 100 patients had tried every biologic class that we had, and we're still not achieving good disease control. We know that within classes, there's actually multiple drugs. And if you look at people that have had three or more biologic, the number went way up to one in five patients. The other thing that came from that study was initially it took a long time to become quote unquote refractory because drugs took many years to come to the market. But now that we have all these drugs available, we see people achieving this state very quickly because, you know, once someone's not responding to a drug, we don't want to wait. And so there's still a significant proportion of patients that were not achieving disease control. That study then evolved, and I was approached by Elsa Bosworth, who um, will, many of us will know very well as a patient champion with the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society, or NRAS. And she contacted me and asked, she, she first of all shared with me that there were patients that were contacting NRAS because their CCGs were refusing to fund multiple biologics, even though we knew there was a clinical need. Uh, so she said, well, does it matter? Like, could you look at how patients are responding with subsequent lines of therapy? So Dr. Stephen Zhao, um, who is, works with our group in Manchester, says, well, I'll tackle this issue. And what he found was that, yes, your best response comes with your first biologic. But after that, we were still seeing a not insignificant proportion of patients responding to the third, uh, sorry, second, a third, a fourth. We even had people on a fifth. We've had people up to the 10th line of a biologic. And we still see that there is this proportion that responds. So to make a decision that after four drugs, you should not even try another one didn't make sense based on our data. And that's now been published. I think that's a really, really important illustration of how the biologics data um, registry, looking at real world data, has been able to um, look at really what has been an unmet need yeah. with a great proportion of our patients of rheumatoid arthritis, as mm. you were saying, sort of um, one in 10 requiring multiple biologics. Yeah. Um, that's really, really good, isn't it? Thank you. I guess moving on from that then, actually, so you can see the power of the registry and um, in helping drive change. Bringing it back to our rheumatology departments, how have you um, seen examples of the, the registry help drive service improvement, if you're aware of any examples of that? I think the issue we've talked about with the refractory disease, I think that is uh, one example of improved outcomes for our patients because they can have better access to treatment. Yeah. I mean, we saw a similar example of that, oh gosh, it's now 15 years ago, but there was a time when patients were only, many sites were only allowed to have ever one biologic. And the thought of switching to a sequential biologic was almost unheard of, often not funded. And we could show very clearly using biologics data that um, we, patients did have benefits with cycling through TNF therapies. We now know it's probably better to change class, but at the time there was no other class. Yeah. And that actually resulted into a change in NICE guidance. I think the other thing where we saw a change was very early on with the registry as the use of biologics increased rapidly in clinics. We saw the establishment of biologic clinics and the increasingly important role of the rheumatology nurse specialist. And at the outset of the register, a lot of the data was generously provided in time from their specialists, and it helped 
in a way, restructure some of the services that we provided to have patients followed uniformly, um, you know, within SAC clinics. It facilitated registration to the register itself. So I think we saw the way that the care of the patient with the uh, receiving anti-TNF and bio- other biologics would have changed as well. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. I guess for people who are not that aware of the, the registry and not, not put patients onto it themselves, can I ask you, Kath, how about how in practical terms, how do people go about putting patients on the register? Absolutely. So um, a site will need to have ethical approval to do that. And that's really easy to do. We have someone within our team that can help uh, facilitate that. Um, We need a nominated PI, principal investigator, locally at that site. And I think one thing that's changed over the years is that the PI always used to be a consultant. But now, even looking at the register today, we have nurse consultants who are PIs. We have pharmacists who are PIs. So it's whatever works within that team. Um, we definitely would recommend that and and that can actually help with workloads as well I think. And when it comes down to sort of the nitty-gritty of uploading data onto the registry who tends to do it and what how long does it take how easy is it to go about registering information? It, it is really easy. I think the baseline form will take a bit longer, so maybe 40 minutes to register a patient. Um, the follow-ups are six monthly for three years and then annually thereafter. Um, and it can depend how, how sick the patient is, really. I mean, if you have a really well patient, it can take a few minutes just to tell us that nothing's really changed. Um, but actually, if you've got, if the patient's had a few side effects, that can take a little bit longer. But I'd say on average between 10 to 20 minutes, maybe. And who do you find tends to be uploading the information? Is it a dedicated research nurse within a department or is it a pharmacist or does it vary greatly? So I think, again, going back to what Kimmy was alluding to, it's changed over the years, hasn't it, really? So we see less biologics nurses now um, entering the data and it's more in term research teams and administrators. And I think this is a really um, it's a positive thing because it allows the, the nurses to do what they really need to do in clinic. Yeah. But, you know, you can have you can employ research and this is where the CRN can help as well the clinical research network if you are really struggling with any kind of um, help to actually enter the data you can actually contact the CRN and they may be able to provide you with additional help. I think that's really useful isn't it because I mean there are many small departments across Mm -hmm. the country and they don't necessarily have the resources which a bigger teaching hospital might have so it seems like that's not a barrier which is brilliant isn't it. I guess perhaps then Kimmy if I put this to you if um people around the countries you said that this database is not just a uh, something for Manchester um, that it's it's something that is for all of us within the rheumatology specialty if somebody has a great idea and they think look at this richness of data that's sitting here in the registry how could I harness it or use it what would their how could they go about approaching you with this thought well the easiest place to start is to contact me and share with me what your idea is I mean there's often a preconceived notion that all the research to come out of the register is pre-planned and that couldn't be further from the truth. One thing we should say is the, the register receives a lot of funding from pharmaceutical companies, as I alluded to right at the beginning. So as part of that, the way the funding comes to the university is through the British Society for Rheumatology, who then has a grant that they uh, have awarded to the University of Manchester to run this What happens in the background is the data is contributing to the risk management plan, to the MHRA, to the EMA, to the FDA, and many regulators internationally to ensure that the safety of our drugs are continually monitored. 
As part of that, there is a small mandatory research plan that needs to take place, and that is usually core adverse event rates. But it's not necessarily to the level that one might expect for a publication. So the best thing people should do is they should contact me. And it may be that you are someone that works within an epidemiology research group. You already have statisticians or you yourself, you know, love to analyze data. And we can work out uh, a way that you yourself could undertake the research. There's then an application process. The BSR has a committee that reviews applications Because there is the transfer of sensitive data, we do have to put in place contracts under GDPR to make sure data is being safely stored when it's transferred outside of the University of Manchester. But that is all very normal and would happen with any data set application. The other way that people can access data is you might have a really great research idea, but you're not part of a research team. You actually don't know how to actualize that. And that shouldn't put you off contacting us. And it might be that, gosh, that that's a fantastic idea. In six months time, I think one of our analysts would have some time free and we could look at this and you could help us devise what is the question exactly? What patient should we undertake this analysis in? We can, you could help us look through data that we generate and help us write the paper. Well, that's really helpful. I mean, it sounds just like there's real potential for a, quite a collaborative process that you're describing. Absolutely. And a number of our papers have come out using both of those approaches. Yeah, oh, that's great. So I think that's a really clear message for anyone who's listening to the podcast. If you've got ideas, you can get in touch with, with yeah. Kimmy. So I guess my final question really is, what are the next big projects on the horizon for the BSR, BRRA? So that's a great question because one could say that you know biologics are just so bread and butter now within rheumatology clinics that what is the need to have a biologics register anymore we we prescribe them comfortably we have much less concern than we had 20 years ago so what is the role for the biologics register that said there's still a lot of unknowns about our treatment and i think this is why having infrastructure that is systematically capturing data on biologics and now um, jack inhibitors as well is such an important resource for the uk so what are the big questions now well biosimilars are having very widespread use we have finally now completed some initial analyses of biosimilars which show very confidently uh, that they are very similar, which is what we suspected, but they're not similar for everybody. And we see about 10% of patients that do switch back to originators and to put numbers on that can be very helpful. I think the other big area of concern is, of course, the results of the recent oral surveillance trial, which suggested increased risk of cardiac events and higher rates of cancer among patients receiving tofacitinib versus anti-TNF, which shows that maybe some of our preconceptions that all of these drugs are equal and safe may not be true. So we are now capturing data on JAK inhibitors. Now, we don't use as many JAK inhibitors as we do for anti-TNF therapies. So not only does the UK register hold its own data, we're also part of a very wide international collaboration with the most brilliant name, Jackpot. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. (laughs) That uh, has, I think, over 17 national registries um, from Europe and North America participating. And we are now pulling data together 
to be able to generate those large sample sizes to be able to address and give us more confidence about what are the true rates of myocardial infarction, VTE, uh, malignancy among our patients. So uh, there is always going to be a role as new therapies come aboard. We need to understand with as much confidence around TNF, what is the safety? And I think then that brings it back to our patient, doesn't it? And the consultations that we have with them that we are able to probably communicate risk and um, some of these difficult consultations much better when we're pulling information from real world data. So I think that's extremely useful. Uh, I mean, I put both of you, are there, is there anything else that you would like to add to sort of the breadth of things that we've discussed today? Could I just add one thing? Yes. So that if there's any site that is struggling or would like some help or advice from our team, we, Kimmy and I have a great team of people who are willing, you know, they will get on the end of the phone, they can email, they can come, we can do presentations at your site if it's helpful to learn what other sites have done to try and get things put in place to, to participate. So uh, please do contact us. We are always around um, and we'll get back to you immediately. I think the note I would leave on is a massive thank you, a thank you to the 30,000 patients that have given time to fill in forms over many years for this study. Massive thank you to the British rheumatology community for making this study a reality because we know the time, we know the impact. And to say that we want to work with sites to help you contribute where you want to contribute and to help balance expectations that there's no expectation that every patient will consent to be on the study or that we have time to put every single patient on and we can work with sites to say well what what would work with you yeah that's brilliant well it's been a real pleasure to chat with both of you today um so thank you and i recommend any listeners um to have a look at the very comprehensive intuitive website about the bsr brra and that's got lots of information on it um, and guidance about how to get further involved and sort of frequently asked questions and, and much more um thank you all for listening Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.